Amen. Thank you, Pete. So in a conversation that I had this week with a a friend of mine who's a pastor, I I began, I guess I, I figured I would... Well, anyways, in light of his converse, this conversation, I began asking the question, to medicate or not to medicate? That is the question. And I think it's a question that a lot of us have as we face different medical challenges. Do we press on and move through that, or, or do we get medication to help us? Physicians, you might be thinking, there's a good pill for that. Other folks might be thinking, no. And the reason it came up is that a friend of mine, Stephen, was uh, he and his wife have been battling something with their youngest child. She's adopted, and um, she's just had a variety of medical challenges, mental, emotional, and they've tried to press through that, and, and so they decided to go ahead and medicate. And yet, Stephen was saying that as he, <clears throat> as he watched his daughter adjust to this, some of the medications that she's on caused her to have weird psychedelic trips. She would lay in bed and just have these wacky hallucinations. And as a father, he was heartbroken to watch his daughter endure that. And yet his natural inclination was to not medicate. He didn't want to put her on these meds because he was afraid. And, and, and really, part of what he said he sort of made this analogy, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. He said, you know, if you, if you never learn to walk without a crutch, you'll never develop the muscles needed to walk at all. You'll never overcome that challenge. And so he felt like medication for his daughter became a crutch that she would be dependent on for her whole life. Now, I'm not trying to make any sort of blanket statement regarding medication or disabilities, but I think it's worth noting, generally... If we never face anything difficult, then we lack the moral, the emotional, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual muscles needed to thrive in the face of adversity. Think about that. If we never face anything difficult, if we are always looking for the easy way out, if we're always looking for the way beyond the pain, let me just avoid the pain then we will never develop the emotional, the moral, the physical, the mental, the spiritual muscles needed to endure through adversity. For many in our culture today, we are running away from adversity and pain by turning to safe spaces, turning to medication, turning to cancellations. I don't want to hear what you have to say if it's going to offend me turning to echo chambers that only feed us what is consistent with what we already believe. We've lost the art of constructive conversations. We've lost the resilience that comes from challenges of adversity. We've lost, I think, our collective backbone. We've become wimps. So then the question becomes, how should we, as people of God, respond to adversity? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to open to the passage that Pete read for us a few minutes ago, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to see a little bit of a perspective on that. You see, if you remember, over the last couple of months, we looked at 1 Thessalonians, and, and in that letter, we saw how we've observed how Paul encouraged this young church. If, in, in case you haven't been here for all of this or, or may have forgotten, over about three weeks, Paul and Silas and Timothy evangelized, witnessed to the people of Thessalonica. And, and, and then as, as persecution arose, the, this, these baby Christians, these new people said, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we need you to go because this is getting really tough. And so Paul wrote the first letter really to encourage them. And, and as we saw in, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, I think we'll see over the next few weeks as we dive into the second letter to the Thessalonians. But today, as we look at chapter one, we get to learn from Paul and the Thessalonians about a biblical response to adversity, both our response and the response that God has promised for his people. And so let's begin by thinking about our response. And if, if we could look at Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians, we would see this in verses three and four, and we would say that our response to adversity is steadfastness. Steadfastness, sticking to it, staying, persisting. Paul writes in verses three and four of, of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter one, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. As I said, this church was birthed in the midst of great persecution. And from the earliest days of salvation, they grew up in an environment of opposition. And so as Paul did in his first letter, he is encouraging them here in his second letter, encouraging their steadfastness, encouraging them to stick it out. And if you notice in that passage, he points out two things that they're encountering. One is persecution and the other is affliction. And as I was studying this this week, I began to wonder, what is the difference between persecution and affliction? Well, throughout the New Testament, persecution seems to be those intentional acts of oppression, something that one person does specifically to another person or to another group because of something that they are, because of maybe it's their ethnicity, maybe it's their beliefs, maybe it's some other thing that they're just jealous about, maybe it's their wealth. It's, it's an intentional act intended to harm someone else because of something that they, it might not be anything they've done wrong. It might just be who they are. This is something that I think we see in China as the Uyghur people face enslavement. They face re-education camps. They even face genocide simply because they are I think in a lot of ways, I heard a podcast about this recently, a lot of the reason they're, they're, they're receiving that is they're refusing to bow down to the, the Chinese government. And they also have some of the best land in China. Well, you know, when you've got good land, everybody else might want it. So they're facing that kind of persecution. I think we see this a bit in the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Hamas's stated claim is to wipe out Jews. 
And yet, unfortunately, the Palestinians are caught in the midst of this conflict, and it's just ugly. We also see this in the burning of churches and the imprisonment of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've gotten an email from a group that I've worked with in India hearing, oh, such and such a church in this town was burned because people didn't like what was going on. Or hearing about it in Pakistan or, or Afghanistan or in Africa. In Iran, that's right. Persecution is not pleasant, but it's a reality that Christians must be willing to face. Charles Simeon, a a pastor from the 1800s in England, said persecution for righteousness' sake is what every child of God must expect. But Paul uses another word too. He he, he recognizes that the, the Thessalonians are facing persecution, but he also says you're facing affliction. And this word affliction has a bit of a broader range of meaning. Yeah, it includes persecution, but it includes tribulation, it includes suffering, it includes trouble. It might be a direct action that someone has done, or it might just be a byproduct of something else. It might be simply the health challenges that we talked about that I mentioned my friend's daughter was facing, that many of us face. That would be considered affliction. And so here, the Thessalonians are enduring that. Charles Spurgeon, a pastor, again, in England in the the 1800s, was known to suffer both from depression and from severe lung disease, lung impairments. And so when he was facing depression, he would pour out his heart to God and say, God, I can't go on. And he would press on and he would endure the affliction that was happening in his mind. And then when his lungs got so bad and it got so difficult for him to even get up and talk, he would take extended breaks and he would go to Italy or he would go to warmer climates in Europe so that his lungs would clear up. And then he would jump right back back into the, the pollution and the wetness and the dirty air of London so that he would fulfill the call that God had called him to. He was enduring affliction. I think we also see affliction endured in the steadfastness of a woman like Fanny Crosby. Here's a lady who was, who was afflicted with blindness. She couldn't see. She didn't get to see the world around us. And yet she has written thousands of hymns that we as a church get to sing. Her steadfastness in the midst of her affliction has been a blessing to the church. In fact, I think someone asked her one time, hey, if if we could cure your blindness, would you want that? And she's like, no, I think I just want to see my Savior's face for the first time. That's the first thing I want to see when I have sight. And so for these Thessalonians, it seems these persecutions were direct and intense. The afflictions were difficult. And yet Paul encourages them for their steadfastness and perseverance in the face of this adversity. As Ermal encouraged you guys last week as, as we were traveling back from California, that we need to follow the examples of godly individuals. And I think the Thessalonians are people that we can follow an example when we face persecution and when we face ad- adversity or uh, affliction. But Paul notes that their endurance or steadfastness produced two things because it's not without some result that we go through these things. Remember I said if we, if we always learn to walk with a cane or a, a crutch, we'll never gain the muscles needed to walk on our own. 
And so Paul says, here's what I see in you, a growing faith and an increasing love. This, thinking about this idea of a growing faith, we often think about faith as something you either have or you don't have. When you sat down on the pew, you had faith to sit down hoping, believing that it wouldn't collapse underneath you. Faith is that you either have it or you don't. But then there's that other part of faith that is this developing, growing. It's sort of like sanctification. We, you, you receive salvation in Jesus Christ. And from that day on, for, for me, from, from the day I was about five years old, I received salvation. But then I began to grow in sanctification, grow in holiness from that day until the day I graduate into eternity. And it's the same for us here. Faith growing in the midst of, of persecution. As we mature, as we face various adversities, we continue to thrive and our faith grows. We can learn to trust God in ways that we didn't trust him before. And I think this is what Paul observes in the Thessalonians. And so the question for us, is our faith growing? Have we matured? Have you and I matured from the first time that we learned about Jesus Christ? Are we making steps forward in faith or are we just staying as a baby Christian? Are we trusting God more through the adversities that we face? But Paul also says he sees one other thing, and that is this increasing love. This increasing love for each other, the adversities that they face endear each other more and more to them. For those of you who are married, you may recognize that you love your spouse differently and more today than you did when you first married them. You learn to love and appreciate them as, as you get to watch. For me, as I get to watch Danielle endure different kinds of trials at work, as she perseveres amidst the concern she has for her sister and her parents, as she learns to deal with our children as they get to different ages, I get to love and appreciate the way that God has fashioned her. And these are things that I didn't know as a 22-year-old when we first said I do. And I think the same is true for us in the church. As we watch each other endure difficulties, as we walk with each other through pain and persecution, we get to both encourage one another, but also we get to grow in this love. I was thinking about this. I think it's been a joy over the last year or two. Carolyn, I'm going to put you on the spot for just a moment. I didn't ask permission, so I'm gonna, you're not the only one. I'm going to point out a few people. But Carolyn, for years, invested in the children's ministry and at some point in time needed to make a shift. She was ready. She was like, I think I'm done. So she waited and persisted. And then last weekend, when you guys all got together to box up 123 Operation Christmas Child boxes, that is the fruit of her persisting and praying, working with some other folks to to bless people around the world, finding a new ministry that wasn't there before. Or we look at the ways that M Michelle and Misty are putting their passion into practice as the kids are being cared for. I hear great things. And then even as the McNeils open up their yard for a bunch of kids to come and bounce on a bounce house yesterday, learning to love them more and differently because of things that, are, that they're enduring differently. Or who knew that a pediatric radiologist would love kids and would have these gifts of organization like Mark does 
to make, as he came to me and said when he was feeling called into doing that, he said, I just want to make it wicked awesome. I want to make it fun for the kids. And I think he's, he's worked with Misty and Michelle and others to make that happen. Or to watch Dan use his leadership skills to plan and prepare worship services, to organize the deacons. Or that joy of watching community group leaders step into something that we have never done, at least not in the way that we're doing it now. I love hearing stories about how they're learning to love differently. They're doing to, learning to open their homes, getting uncomfortable for the glory of God and for the encouragement of each other. So as we endure various things, sometimes these things are things that we bring on ourselves. We get to grow in that increasing love for each other and that growing faith. So Paul encourages Thessalonians by giving thanks. And then he also provides some encouragement by helping the Thessalonians and us to understand God's response in the midst of our adversity, God's response in the midst of our persecution, God's response in the midst of our affliction. And that is God's response is a sentence. And I'm not talking about grammar. I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about judgment. When I was in biology class in high school, I learned about the fight or flight response that our bodies take on. When an infection comes in, we, our bodies send certain things to go fight that infection. But in nature, there are some animals, they have that fight response and then others have a flight response. They run away from that. They wanna get away. And I think sometimes for us in our society, we tend to either be people who wanna run completely away from any sort of adversity or we want to fight back with such vengeance that we think we have to, we have to counterattack in a way that escalates, in a way that gets back or at least is equal. So again, what is, the appropriate, what is appropriate for God's people? And Scripture tells us that vengeance is God's response. Vengeance is God's response. Endurance is ours. Vengeance is God's. Paul writes this. Look at verses uh, 5 to 10 in 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, This is evidence of, of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, invicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. I think there are a handful of things that we can glean from this section, but one of which is the worthiness of our suffering. It doesn't, it's not without purpose. God uses our suffering for a reason. But, but it's, and it's also not that our, our suffering is our entrance into heaven. Steve often jokes that he's getting to heaven by pushing buttons on the computer in the back. That's his means of salvation. Steve, it's not. It might help. 
afterwards, but it's not. But I think sometimes for us, we think that if we don't go through suffering, that we won't make it. And that's some, something that we might be deceived into reading here. The evidence of suffering that we might go through, the evidence of adversity is evidence that we are part of God's kingdom and what we're living is contrary to the world around us. We can expect adversity. And so the sentence or the verdict or judgment that God lays out is his just response or vengeance for the suffering of his people. God will bring affliction on those who afflict and relief to those who experience affliction. In other words, God has our back eternally. God has your back eternally if you are his. But notice in that passage, if you look, there there are two groups of people that God will particularly visit with his sentence. There's those who don't know him and those who don't obey his gospel. Well, the question becomes, who are those two two groups of people? So in that first group, those who don't know him, several commentators speculated that these would be people who simply don't believe in any deity or they believe in every deity. In the Thessalonian culture, this might be the pagans who worship the pantheon of Greco-Roman deities. We might see this in our age as people who are simply purely secular. They They believe in whatever they want. They ignore what is plain about God as we see in Romans 1. But then there's a second group, those who don't obey the gospel of God. And again, some commentators have speculated that this might be the Jewish people in that day who rejected the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. They're not obeying the gospel because they said, no, Jesus isn't the way. I believe in God, but not in Jesus. They clearly have a knowledge of God, but don't obey the faith that is commanded expected by the gospel. And so God will bring his just sentence on these two groups of people, his judgment. Speaking of, Tom, of, of judgment, Thomas A. Kempis said, truly, when the day of judgment comes, we shall not be examined as to what we have read, but, we, but what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but how well we have lived. In other words, how we have responded to what is expected of us in the gospel. N.T. Wright has said, Paul looks to the future, at the future day of judgment, which is what our present passage is about. He remains equally clear. The future judgment will take place on the basis of the entire life a person has led. God's not willy-nilly or haphazard about his judgment. His justice has merit. His sentence is, is based on lived facts. What have you done? With God, your knowledge of him. Have you ignored him? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your means of salvation? But notice in this passage, their their judgment is eternal destruction away from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord. Now, I know that this, a passage like this makes it seem like God is an angry and vindictive God who is out to get people. Yes, God is a holy God and he is just and he has expectations. And we all, scripture says, we all fall short of God's glory. And yet elsewhere in scripture that we see that he is also loving and patient, that he doesn't want anybody to perish. 
for Christians who are facing or experiencing persecution and affliction, we can endure that knowing, endure that with joy, knowing that God will ultimately bring an appropriate judgment. He will provide justice. We don't need to try to get our own retribution. Yeah, I think we should stand up for other people, but we don't need to get back at people for what we encounter. And yet for those who may not yet believe, know that there will be a day of judgment, a day where the court of eternal justice is ended, a day when the gavel will fall and the sentence will be doled out. And so until that day, you have two options. One is to continue going the way you are, refusing to know God, refusing to obey the gospel and face that sentence on the day that that God lays down the gavel. Or your second option is to know that God is holy, just, and loving. And know that Jesus is the good news in the gospel. He fulfilled all the requirements of God's holiness and justice. And so to obey the gospel, all we have to do is repent. Repent of our sin. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. As Christians, see, we don't think we're better than anybody else. We know, I know as a follower of Christ that were it not for Jesus, I would stand condemned. And when that gavel goes down, I would be judged. And that eternal sentence would have been mine. But God, Jesus Christ has taken the gavel for each of us, if we would but trust him. You see, his eternal existence faced a mortal death and paid the eternal death that our mortal lives, that my mortal life deserves. John 3, 16 and 17, I know we're all familiar with it, but hear it anew. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, there's that judgment, should not perish, but have eternal life. And here's the second verse that we often overlook. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but there's an old adage that there are two guarantees in life, right? There's death We're all going to come to an end, and there are taxes. We all have to pay the tax man someday. But think about God's divine judgment a bit like taxes. God's holiness demands something. It demands a perfection that we can't live, but through Jesus Christ we have. And eventually, until the day when God returns, until the day when Jesus comes back, we're just waiting. With our taxes, you know, we're, we have to collect all our receipts and pull all our money together and make sure we're accurately reporting to the IRS what is there. And then on April 15th or April 18th or however that works today, we have to say, okay, here's what I owe you. We pay the tax man. Eventually, some of us file extensions. But eventually, the extensions run out. And there will be a day where we have to pay the tax. And friend, Jesus has already paid your eternal tax, the eternal price for your sin. So let me encourage you, put your faith 
Put your life in his holy ledger so that when you face death, that other guarantee that's going to happen, you can do so with confidence and joy, knowing that Jesus has your life in his for eternity. Let me just close with this. Life may not be the easy journey that we all wish it could be. There will be times when we all face persecution and times of affliction. And we will have to endure adversity, but we can do so confidently knowing that through, through, those, through those things, God is producing in us a growing faith and an increasing love for one another, ultimately for his glory. Paul concludes this chapter with a prayer for the Thessalonians, and I pray that this would be our prayer as well. In verses 11 to 12, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. The last couple days I've been down in um, Upper Marlboro. Seems weird to say down in Upper, but... I was down in Upper Marble for the annual meeting of all the Baptists here in Maryland, in Delaware. And during those couple of days, we had business meeting things, and we would vote on this and that. But we also had a few different speakers come, and other pastors would preach and just provide some encouragement. And so uh, this guy named Victor Kirk, who's an African-American pastor in our convention shared, a, uh, I think, a really encouraging message on prayer. But he closed his message with this story, and I think it's appropriate for us. Victor shared that in, in the early 1900s, a guy named Samuel Morris, who was a missionary in Africa, he'd spent 25 years in Africa, was wrapping up his time there. He was on his way home. And he happened to be on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who had, been, who had just spent three weeks in Africa killing animals, hunting. Of course, Teddy Roosevelt was a big, burly guy. I mean, he's kind of short, but he's very muscular. He was a big, outdoorsy guy, and we have a lot of our parks because of work that Roosevelt did. So they happened to be on this same ship, this long voyage back from Africa to North America, and when they pulled into the harbor, Morris noted, noticed that there was all this fanfare There was a band out there. There were hundreds of people cheering and waving, hollering and hooting for President Roosevelt. There was this great fanfare. And Morris grabbed his bags and he walked off the boat completely unnoticed. And he started having a bit of a pity party. And he started praying to God. He said, God, I've I've poured my life out for you for 25 years. Here's this guy who's been killing animals for three weeks, and he gets this reception. And I've been saving lives for 25 years with the message of the gospel, and I get nothing? And Samuel Morris writes, he said it was in that moment that he heard the still, small voice of God, and he said, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. So, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, when we face adversity, when we face persecution, when we face affliction, 
Walk through it with joy, knowing that you are not home yet. There will be a day when Jesus comes back. And that fanfare, that celebration, when he welcomes you and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. May he find us faithful when he comes again. Let's pray. God,